Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 91. Um, going back to our series, which we're moving through, and we try to interdisperse some other things to keep, um, hopefully, the uh, listeners' interest out there. English antiquity, English antiques. Um, and I, I just find it very interesting to, again, break down all the major categories of English antiques, and that's what we're trying to do here. So that brings us to tonight's episode, episode 91, um, glass, glass in England. The English glass industry is still comparatively young. High-quality table glass has only been produced in England since the end of the 15th century. We may compare this with the industry in Egypt, which, which was established about 1370 B.C., or that of Rome, which already held a secret of most of the methods of hand production and decoration that we know today. It is true that in the late Middle Ages, window glass and rough glass vessels were being produced in England, but the work was primarily in the hands of foreigners and cannot be even compared with the glasses which the Venetians were producing at the same time, whose delicacy and complex decoration even the Victorians had to struggle to reproduce. Yet, for two reasons, English glass occupies an important place in the history of glass production. In the first place, it was in England that lead glass was first produced successfully on a large scale. This was the result of the work of George Ravenscroft, who, for the first time, obtained the silica needed in glassmaking from English instead of Venetian flints, and added an oxide of lead called litharge. His glass was heavier than the Venetian glass, but superior in its brilliance and its remarkable light-dispersing quality. The simple and elegant designs of, um, by the end of the 17th century and the first half of the 18th century showed the glass off at its best, and the work of George Ravenscroft and the glassmakers who succeeded him not only produced the first authentically English style in glasses, but also reached the high watermark of English glass production for all time. For the second reason, we must look at the mid-19th century when, throughout Europe, as well as in England, glasses were being produced that were little more than a hodgepodge of ancient techniques and the designs of earlier periods, technically brilliant, but aesthetically worthless. William Morris reacted against this as he reacted against heavily Victorian furniture and repressive Victorian social conditions by trying to start again the first principle, from the first principles. In 1859, he commissions his friend Philip Webb to design some wine glasses and tumblers for him in simple, elegant shapes, and this marked the beginning of the revival of the handmade blown glass taking its inspiration from Roman and medieval glass. Fine glass production in the 20th century, both in Europe and America, has followed on from this. Collectors are no longer likely to come across glasses produced in England before Ravencroft's time, and would probably not recognize them as such if they did, for they were produced by continental craftsmen in a style barely distinguishable from that of the of Venice or the Lothaire de Marfont. Most of these examples that have been identified are in museums, and 
if they came onto the market, would be extremely expensive. Few collectors go back, and then the period of the baluster stem glass is roughly 1675 to 1720. At first, these had solid baluster or inverted baluster stems beneath a round funnel or V-shaped bowl, and were otherwise plain. But later, the glassmakers began to embellish them with knops of all shapes and sizes, drop knops, annulated knops, cushion knops, acorn knops, egg knops, mushroom-shaped knops, and many more. The bowls often had thick, solid bases, sometimes with a tear in them, and the usual shapes, they were conical, the round funnel, and then they were wasted. Immediately after the accession of George I in 1714, a style appeared in England derived from the glasses of Hesse and West Germany, which we call Silizen. It featured a molded pedestal stem, which was ribbed and shouldered, four-sided at first, but later, and more commonly, eight-sided. The style was also used for taper sticks, candlesticks, and sweet meat glasses. By the 1720s, the heavy baluster glasses and high-quality metal were being replaced by a lighter style. For the manufacturers wished to make cheaper glasses than could be sold to a wider public. Thus began the period of the balustroid stem, 1725 through 50. Glasses now had smaller bowls and larger stems. The Kit Kat glasses, named after a type of Neller depicted in the Kit Kat Club using a drink for a toast, were typical. They had a trumpet bowl on a baluster stem with a plain section beneath, and sometimes a base knob. The light baluster or, or Newcastle glasses from 1735 to 65 were of a better quality than the balustroids, and they were much taller, slender, knopped stems, and some are the most elegant glasses ever produced. Newcastle was a very important glassmaking center at the time, and its products were in heavy demand, not only in England but also on the continent, as they were better made a better material for the engraver than the continental potash lime glasses. The largest group of glasses made between 1740 and 1770 had plain straight stems and were turned out quite cheaply and in large quantities for the popular market. Though not as attractive as those we have already mentioned, some of them are well proportioned and many engraved with patriotic slogans or hop or barley motifs. Some dram glasses have heavy firing foot when club meet, when club members wish to applaud a toast or a speech, they thumped the glasses on the table and it made a noise just like gunfire. In the 1740s, what were advertised as worm or wrought glasses began to appear. The glassmaker, by elongating and twisting a lump of glass containing air bubbles and forming it into a stem, created a corkscrew or crisscross pattern. Today we call these air-twist stem glasses. From 1750 onwards, an even more startling result was produced by making similar crisscross patterns with opaque white or colored glass threads in the stem. The idea was by no means new, for it was related to the Romans' style, which the Venetians revived in the 16th century. But it was 
shone off to a peculiar advantage in the long straight stems of the English glasses. The last group of drinking glasses, which can be categorized by the style of the stem alone, is the group of faceted stem glasses. These were cut, usually with diamond or hexagonal shaped facets, which covered the stem, the foot, and often the base of the bowl. Most of them have round funnel, ovoid, or OG bowls, and many have a simple engraved pattern on the bowl. Glasses might have been decorated in one of three ways in the 18th century, by engraving, enameling, or cutting. Wheel engraving first became popular in the 1740s with the appearance of the flowered glasses. Scroll work, flowers, vine leaves, and grapes were the usual motifs of a decorative border and of the light, of the light baluster glass. But the English wheel engraving was not in the highest standard yet, and consequently, English glasses, especially Newcastle glasses, were sent abroad. Much of the work was done in the Netherlands. Many glasses were sent back to England when they had been engraved, but there were other English glasses made in styles not common at home, but probably designed specifically for foreign markets, as were many other um, art artifact wares. Diamond point engraving was also popular. It was used, for example, to record political events or to enable the wine drinker to show his political allegiance and perhaps tactily to demand a similar allegiance from his guests. The most sought after of these are the small group of Jacobite glasses, known as the Amen glasses from the fact that they had some verses of the Jacobite hymn engraved on them, ending with the word Amen. This is probably the only group of English glasses which has been extensively forged. They were made for a small number of important Jacobites, probably personal friends of James, the old pretender. There were a wide variety of these less exclusive Jacobite glasses. Most of them, like the Amen glasses, appeared after the Battle of Colman Moor in 1745, probably over a period of about 20 years. This is a, cur <coughs> this is a curious um, curiosity when one considered the hopeless, hopelessness of the Jacobite cause after the defeat of 1745. The glasses are engraved with symbols, the most common being the rose, represents the throne of England, and rosebuds for the old pretender and the young pretender. The thistle is a symbol of the Scottish throne, the star represents Jacobite endeavor, and the stricken oak, the unlucky house of the Stuart. There are other symbols whose meanings are much less clear. Some glasses also bore Jacobite slogans on the bowl or foot. Fiat retreat, health to all of our fast friends, etc. The Williamite glasses were made in the mid-18th century, probably on the 15th anniversary of the Battle of Boyne in 1690, at which William III defeated James II. Generally, they bear an equestrian portrait some references to the Boyne, and a quotation from the Orange Lodge's toast. On some of them, the Irish harp appears. During the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 63, glasses were engraved with ships and portraits of Frederick the Great or Britannia in patriotic mottos. But it was only the great events that were recorded on glass. Many, for example, 
commemorate fierce local election campaigns. So it's coming around again. The finest enameling, <laughs> enameling on glass is associated with William and Mary Belby, who worked in Old Newcastle from about 1762 to 1778. Their helpers included the well-known engraver Thomas Bewick. They used generally a single color, a bluish or pinkish-white monochrome. With this, they painted fine, delicate designs incorporating peacocks, ruins, and obelisks, vines, rural scenes, flowers, and fruit. William also did some glasses with armament attached to them. Enamelers also worked on Bristol glass. The name is used for an opaque white glass, which has an appearance similar to porcelain. It was made in Bristol, England, but has certainly made elsewhere now, too. The Newcastle glassmakers made Bristol glass, and it may tell well have been produced in the Midlands. The cream jugs, candlesticks, and vases, and tea caddies made in addition also in Bristol were often and also painted in oils or varnish and fired, and some were actually transfer printed. The standard of decoration varies considerably. For some pieces were brought from the factories and decorated by amateur home craftsmen who sold them to the shops, while others were decorated by professional artists. One, set, one such is Michael Elkins, who worked on a number of British, with British glassmakers. Bunches of flowers, scroll works, birds, and chinoiserie were the favorite subjects. Many people consider Bristol Blue to be one of the supreme achievements of the English glassmaker. As with Bristol glass, the name is generic, not geographical. The glassmakers had to go to Bristol to obtain the coloring constituent, smalt, which came to the port of Bristol from Saxony, and so they called it Bristol Blue. The rich color of the glass is shown off at its best advantage in the wine glasses and the decanters. Many of the latter had the names of drinks gilded on them, and sometimes a gilt label and chain around the neck of the bottle was simulated by means of gilding. Similar objects were also made in other colors, notably bright green. Nassia glass, on the other hand, has a f was first produced exclusively in Nassia, near Bristol, England, though the style was later copied to other parts of the country. J.R. Lucas, who was a bottle maker in Nassia, decided to take advantage of the, the lower rate of tax imposed on bottle glass by making domestic vessels out of it. Two kinds of decoration were developed. The Latino, or ribbon effect, which had already been revived for use in the enamel twist glasses, and the color flecking used mainly on the dark Nasnia bottle glass. The variety of the products of the industry are too numerous to list, but the Latino flasks are often seen, as are the rolling pins, tobacco pipes, and bells. Cut glass had a long and cherished career. Cutting was certainly used on some balustroid glasses, but in 1745 and 6, an excise duty was imposed on glass based on the weight of the materials, and manufacturers began to reduce the lead content of their glasses and use thinner metal, which was not suited in the art of the cutter. Yet cut glass remained popular, though only on the stems of wine glasses could facet cutting still be used, for the bowls would only bear shallow fluting of, or stars. Then, from 1771 onwards, 
the excise duty was progressively increased. Ireland, on the other hand, had no such duty until 1825, and there was free trade between the two countries from 1870 onwards. It is no surprise, therefore, to find that many English glassmakers moved to Ireland to practice their craft and establish factories at Waterford and elsewhere. Here they could give full play to their taste for deeply cut glass and massive classical shapes, and as the 19th century progressed, the style became more and more ponderous. Cut glass returned to English factories when the excise was removed in 1845 in time to perfect for the great exhibition some of the ugliest glass that has ever been produced. But by then, the American technique of press molding had made it possible to reproduce cut glass styles on a mold, and cut glass itself went out of fashion for actually for a while. There is no space at this point in the episode to deal with the multitude of ephemeral styles in glass that pleased the early Victorians. Few of them produced anything new. It was rehashed with ornamentation on top of ornamentation. The fashion for color glass in the 1840s began in Bohemia in the 1820s. Apsley pellets, crystal ceramic process by which cameo portraits were enclosed in cut glass objects or paperweights was borrowed from the French. The English Milfiori paperweights were barely indistinguishable from those the French had been producing before us. This is not to say that not all Victorian glass is worthless. The Northwood family, for example, perfected a cameo, a cameo glass technique which enabled them to make passable <coughs> imitations of even the Portland vase. They also perfected the technique of etching on glass so that the most fragile glasses could be decorated with etched patterns. John Northwood developed the intagio technique, producing a deeply engraved pattern with the kind of wheel usually used by the glass cutter. Engravers, too, had plenty of opportunity to show off their art on the globular decanters and heavy rummers of the period. And there was so much work that others came from abroad. In the 1880s, two of these, William Fritch and F.E. Kinney, were using a rock crystal method of engraving by which the surface of a vase or decanter would be completely covered in a deeply engraved pattern that gave the appearance of carving. But Morris, in 1859, began the revival of good handmade glass, thanks to the work of such designers as Philip Webb and Christopher Dresser, and glassmakers such as at Powell's Whitefriars Glassworks. Quality glassmen began to concern themselves more with the design of their glasses than with the decoration, and this is the trend that has continued well into the 20th century. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.